you are beautiful, you are so strong, you're amazing. Like Every day of life is a blank sheet of paper. More happy days in our lives. Small, small changes. You had to just be with life. To really practice mindfulness. I am not my thought. It's not easy, but it's very simple. If you put those two things together, you know, the sky is the limit. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for being here. Ani, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really excited to chat. <laughs> you have no idea how excited I am to talk to you because of all the things that you have been through that I know just like this much about and I'm excited to know way more. Can you please tell me about what you do at this moment and where you started? Because I don't want to like give people like this like introduction of, oh, she did this and she did that. I want it to hear from you and then we can dive deep into the money and what it means and how we can support people's mindset and all of the juicy topics of money. But first I want yeah. to hear about your story, please. Yeah, so most people who meet me today know me as somebody who owns a women-owned and operated construction company in the heart of Manhattan. And I build high-end luxury residential apartments in New York City. What they don't know is that I spent 20 years working in the service industry often in tandem with construction jobs, but sometimes instead of. And so when I was working in the service industry, I was a waitress, a bartender, a stripper, a go-go dancer, a fetish performer, a sideshow showgirl, a circus performer, a coyote. I mean, you name it, if it involved tips, I did it. And so, yeah, I, I now run this, you know, alternative style financial media company where I educate people who often work on tips or a fluctuating income and help them become rock stars with their money. I love that you have done so many things. I'm pretty sure so many things that maybe you don't even remember or you didn't even mention. So that's so exciting. I feel like we talk about meditation. If we want to peace, do these things. But if you want to love, do all of this, we don't talk about that way about money. It's like, let's dive deep into what money is for you. We all know what money is, but like we don't understand money. I personally sometimes feel like sometimes I don't understand money, what it is, what it can do for me. How can I use it and not for money to use me? So let's like dive deep into the money. First of all, when I say money, what are some like three things that come into your mind or what, what does money stand for? What is money for you? Ooh, the first thing that comes to mind is power. Um, when I'm you know, in this, if I'm somebody who's working in the service industry, there's an automatic power imbalance, right? The person who is coming into a, a, a service-based establishment, they're holding all of this power. They're my miniature boss for an hour or two hours and they hold all the cards and I'm expected to perform or entertain or serve them. Uh, no questions asked. And so for me, money sometimes can mean, mean power or a lack of power. Let's let explain tips to me. I know what tip is, but coming from a country, and I know there are other countries where people don't tip. And when I noticed, when I, I used to live in the US for six years and when I arrived in the US, I loved the service. The service is so good. Service is not that good in my country because I then I realized, is it because we don't tip? So explain the tipping culture and what it is and how is it supporting workers? Yeah. So tipping is a really interesting concept. It was popularized in the U.S. Um, when wealthy Americans brought it over from Europe, thinking it was very aristocratic. 
Um, but it wasn't super popularized here until after slavery ended when employers at the time, um, you know, formerly enslaved workers went out to find employment. And so they sought jobs at restaurants and in the railroads. Both of those positions at the time were tipped positions. And so at the time, this was a way for employers to be able to continue to profit off of the back of their brown, black, uneducated minority workers. And it's very problematic history. But we've enjoyed this concept, enjoyed, um, for the last hundred years. And tipping is primarily a custom that is happening inside of luxury services. So it's not happening in places where there's a great need for a you know, something like groceries. It's happening inside the establishments of bars, restaurants, and clubs. It's happening inside beauty and body services. So your massage therapist, your tattoo parlor, a sex worker. It's happening in the transportation industry, somebody who's doing delivery services, somebody who's moving your piano up five flights of stairs. It's happening in hotels and travel industries, your tour guides, your maids, your, you know, bellhop, your concierges. So it's happening within luxury services. And it's a way that the government can subsidize those employers' costs because they recognize the fact that these businesses are providing many intangible benefits to the community and to the economy. So they allow tipping to take place as a way of a subsidy. So when you are tipping your waitress, what is happening is your employ the employer of that waitress is providing a smaller wage because if they had to provide a larger wage and employment benefits and hire an HR person and manage all the compliance of a 401k and all of these things, your burger would cost you $40. So what is happening is that the government, the business, and the waitress are all working together to kind of create this unique service experience where you are going to be able to gauge how your service experience was and within a range of typically 15 to 25%, make a tip to the person who's providing that very unique guest experience for you. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of the reason that people enjoy service in these luxury establishments is because of the tipping dynamic. And the workers really like the fact that there's no top line to what they can earn, that they can use the skill of entertainment, of service, points of service, of, you know, their personality, of, you know, being good throughout the beginning, middle, and end of a, of a guest experience to their advantage to make more money. I love the history of tipping. I never heard of the history when it started. So that's so interesting. So people, as I hear in the service industry are more dependent on tips. Yeah. And so yes, it, go ahead. Federally here in the U S we have um, a sub minimum wage which is $2 and 13 cents. So tipped employees are the only people in the U S that get that $2 and 13 cent minimum wage. And then tipping is the other portion of their compensation that is supposed to offset that. Whereas everyone else in the U S enjoys a minimum wage of $7 and 25 cents. Now tipping is not unique to the United States. In fact, most countries have some sort of tipping culture and over a third of countries have a tipping culture of more than 10%. So this is a global concept that, you know, we operate off of, but the U.S. is very unique in just the higher level of tipping that we have for the specific industry. It, 
I was so curious always to experience the service industry basically. So I worked at a pizza place for a little bit and oh my God, it is hard. <laughs> and I worked for purely because I'm blessed to be able to work for purely for the experience. I don't know. I had this craving of understanding service workers better. And it's hard. It is really hard to be with so many people, surrounded with so many people. And you were talking about having power or having less power. How do you think they are having people in service industry are having less power? Yeah, well, I mean, I... examples, maybe give me examples. So let's say that you are reliant on somebody's specific tip in order to make your rent or to make your health insurance payment. For most people who enjoy a nine to five, those safety nets are taken out of their paycheck already. So what they get in their paycheck is net, whereas service workers, what they get from a day's worth of wages, that's their gross. They still have to take out taxes. They still have to take out health insurance. They still have to take out other safety nets like an emergency fund, like they paid time off. They have to build their own paid time off policy. They have to figure out how to claim all of their income so that they can enjoy something like here in the U.S. We have something called Social Security, which is how you protect low and middle income earners who may not have access to a 401k or a pension, which is like a retirement plan here in the U.S. And so unfortunately, service workers still fall through the gaps of that. If they're not mm -hmm. claiming a good portion of their income, they're not going to be eligible for social security. They also don't have access to those 401ks or other retirement plans like pensions that are offered in the U S. So mm -hmm. they age, they age into the most economically disadvantaged population here in the U S and they're often twice as likely to experience poverty and homelessness. Oh my so God. That, that power is really in that, when you understand the economics, you realize that people put themselves in unsafe situations just because they need to, they need those tips. And so they can't say no, they can't mm. say, oh, this person is asking me to do something that's not within the values of my establishment. No, they can't say no because they need that money to live on. And so that's where the lack of power comes from. Hmm. What do you think, uh, we always talk about with everything with intention, set an intention, set a vision, set a goal. Do you think we can do the same for money to set intentions, to understand it better, to have goals? How do we, we have money in our life, certain amount, everyone has a different amount. How do we treat the money? What are some important things we should know, we should do, or maybe don't do? Yeah, I think intentionality is so important. I think for a lot of people who work in, in the service industry or work for themselves, they often get this imposter syndrome where they don't believe that their money or their careers are real. And when you don't believe that your money is real, then you don't believe that it has potential or possibility. And so therefore you're typically not a good steward over that money. You aren't putting it out there into the world with the intention of, oh, it can help me and take care of me when I'm older. It can help and change the world. It can, it can provide me with an amazing lifestyle if I, a good, if I'm a good steward over it and use it appropriately. And so when you don't have that hope and when you don't have that intentionality, then what typically happens is that money just goes out the window right after it comes into your life. And mm -hmm. that can happen through alcohol or substances. It can happen through gambling. It can happen through mostly numbing out in some way. Mm. We talked about 
people in the service industry having less power. Let's talk about how can they regain power or maybe have more power in their lives. What are some ways they can do it? I love this question. So ways that people can get their power back is by setting yourself up with your own emergency fund. Typically for people who work in jobs with fluctuating income in the service industry, I recommend somewhere between three to six months of your fixed monthly expenses. Have that saved into a bucket. That's your emergency fund. Then you have a little more room to be able to be empowered in those service situations where you can say, you know what, my rent this month is not reliant on your specific tip. I can say no. I can say, actually, I'm going to get my manager and have you kicked out of this establishment because mm. you have no business being here and you have no business talking to me this way or treating me this way or expecting this from me. And so that's a way that you can take power back is by like working your finances, working your numbers to build in some safety buffers for yourself. Sometimes that looks like cutting back up fun for a couple months, but then you have that buffer and it's there for you whenever you do need it. So the emergency fund is a big one. Investing for your retirement is another one. Setting boundaries. Boundaries is a huge way for you to preserve your power. Boundaries can look like saying no. Boundaries can look like bringing your own food to your work shift and not paying your restaurant or your club's high prices for food. Boundaries can look like not going out afterwards for drinks. Boundaries can look like, you know, curating the people who are around you instead of just letting whoever is, is in your vicinity into your life. It can look like protecting your energy. It can look like writing things down during a shift so that you don't, ex you know, use extra mental effort. Mm -hmm. um, so protecting yourself in lots of different ways. I love that. There are so many little small things that people have, maybe like the writing down the things. So you like, have that mental energy at the end of the day and you are not like exhausted maybe. I love that. Let's talk about how was the transition from you now owning the business and now like spending two decades. Was it like a slow build up because there is no overnight success? And what was the biggest mindset shift that you had that allowed you to be here right now? Yeah, it was definitely slow. And so nobody changes their financial life overnight especially if you're a low and middle income worker, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of mindset shifts. For me, I was always a hard worker and I was always good at saving. So even now, you know, like I have my, my, my company, but I also have these other projects and passions and, you know, they're, they're jobs. And so I've always had two or three jobs at any time. And so I was lucky to have hard work modeled for me as a young person. And that has been, a big part of my success along with continuing my education through like DIY learning. I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly, you know, at this point I have over 10,000 hours of read and listened to personal finance advice, um, which is, you know, how I've been able to distill all of this into work for this industry. Um, but my journey probably took a big shift in 2013 when I moved to New York city I got two jobs. One was working nights at Coyote Ugly. I don't know if people know that movie, but you sing and dance on the bar, you beat your patrons, you get girls to take their bras off. It's a super spicy time. Um, and then I was also working days on Wall Street. So I was working for an unregulated market that was doing shady financial things like selling usurious loan products and loan sharking. And it was a real big education for me in the markets and in financial services, predatory lending, all of these things. And so 
when I kind of saw the underbelly of how people got into these debt cycles and how people were taken advantage of with these interest rates and um, predatory loan products. It's like, oh, you know, maybe just take this credit card out, put this on credit, take out this loan product. Um, yeah, there was a little bit of a mind shift, mindset shift then. And then again, in 2014, when I got a job at the construction company that I now own, I was employee number four and they tasked me with setting up HR and finance. And it was in seeing those employer systems. And then, in also working for these really high net worth clients who had multi, multi-million dollar budgets where I was like, oh, a lot of this is trade-offs and mindset and, and intentionality. And when I saw all of this, I was like, this is the reason that me and my peers aren't building wealth is because we don't have these safety nets. We don't have this intentionality. We don't have this mindset. And I can personally do something. I can take all of this information. I can distill it out and I can try to push it out there as best I can. That's really inspiring. And I'm pretty sure, like hearing you talk about it, it just seems so easy, but I'm pretty sure it has not been. It's so easier said than done. It's always that way. If someone is coming from a working family, they they have seen their grandfather, their parents always were, they don't believe it's possible for them. Do you think it's possible for everyone to regain power over their financial situation? And then if they don't feel like deserving, because you are saying like, oh, I was around the, with this like hiring people and people who were wealthy. And then you, it's helped you to shift your mindset, but you shifted your mindset. Someone might have been there and it's like, oh, I don't belong here. So how can people shift that mindset when they feel they are not worthy of earning more or being more supported? Yeah. So the people that you surround yourself are really important. And so if the only people that you're surrounding yourself with are people who have a scarcity mindset, don't feel like they could ever have the potential to get better with money, change their situation with money or become you know, better stewards over their money, then you have to get around people that do believe that. Mm. And those people need to become part of your circle. Influence is so important. Environment is so important. And especially for people in the service industry, when a portion of your, your income is so volatile and so uncertain, you can at least control the people that you're surrounding yourself with and have people who know that it's possible, who believe that your actions can have positive outcomes, that, that, that puts you in a different mindset, even just being around those type of people. Other ways that I like to talk about building an abundance mindset, I, I like to talk about abundance mindset because I think, especially when you don't have the money to start making big changes financially, you can at least begin to change your mindset. That's largely a free endeavor, right? So the things like a gratitude practice. When you're practicing being grateful for something, you are changing the chemistry in your brain to focus on what you have and not on what you lack. It does something to your brain. The same thing with charity. If you're able to give away small amounts of money or time or something, you know, a gift that you have or something from your home, when you are in the process of giving something away, your brain is recognizing, hey, I have enough to give away, which means I have enough. And when your brain is thinking that I have enough, that is putting yourself in that abundance mindset. 
And those are two of my favorite ways to, to build an abundance mindset. Other ways that you can tackle it are mantras. I love mantras. My favorite mantra for people in the service industry or people who have a fluctuating income is money comes easily and frequently because it does mm -hmm. when you're in this industry, it comes easily and frequently. So saying things that are both positive, but also true helps you go along building that abundance mindset. And lastly, identity. Working on your identity is very, very important, but making sure that it's identity work that is intentional. So I say this because if you're like, oh, I want to be rich, so I'm going to act rich. That's, and, and your identity, you're, you're attaching an identity of somebody who spends a lot of money. That's not going to work for you. But if you start making shifts like, oh, you know what? I saved money. Therefore I am a saver. And you adopt that mindset, that identity that will propel you to building wealth. So will I've invested. So I am an investor. Adopt the identity of somebody who invests. I am, I am getting better with money. I adopt the identity of somebody who's getting better with money. You're not broke. You have a lot of obligations on your money. Our language is another resource, just like our time, just like our money, just like our attention. And so we need to make sure that we're using our language as a resource to benefit us. And that's even in how we talk about ourselves. I love that because it, there are so many stories that I hear. They're like, I start, I was starting to make money and I was lose all of it because I, in, I deep down, I believed I was not worthy of it. So that's so important. And we started to, I have a six year, almost six year old. He will be six in like two or three months. So Aww. we started to do this thing. We would give him like five Larry, which is a Georgian currency. And we would give, tell him like, you can spend three on buying anything that you want. You have to say one, you have to give away one. Mm -hmm. And whatever you just remind you, you were saying like, it's reminded me of that. And the other day, now he's with my mom. My mom is calling me that he just cleaned the house and then came to my grandma asking for money. He was like, I'm making money here. I cleaned the house for you. Now give me money. <laughs> what are some things maybe, not only for children, when we are learning about the money mindset, we are like children. We are like, we have no idea what we should do. What do you think? If it's for children or for ourselves, how, where can we start shifting our mindset? You mentioned mantra, you mentioned, but <clears throat> where do we, what is the baby step here? Because we have so many steps right now. What is the most important one to start with? For mindset work, I think it's important to remember that most of our beliefs surrounding money are formed by the time we're the age seven. So what you just said mm -hmm. was really important. You're dealing with a six-year-old and to see where his beliefs are financially, is that's so impactful. What a gift you're giving him. But for us who may, you know, maybe we didn't grow up in that environment. You, me, <laughs> you know, a lot of us, a lot of us didn't get that environment um, growing up. And so what's really important is to know that our beliefs are cemented by that time we're the, at the age seven. So we have to kind of unwind that, right? Like, what did I learn from the people around me from zero to seven about money? And how do I unwind that? What are some of my first money memories? Did I learn, you know, was I told that I can't have something because we don't have money? Was I a witness to arguments about money? Did I, you know, was my piggy bank, bank broken into and raided by my parents? You know, like, or were there positive things that I was, that I learned? Did I learn to, to get an allowance or to do chores, to earn money? Like what were some of those early money lessons? And maybe how is that showing up in my life now? 
if I have that scarcity mindset, if I saw my parents fighting, am I avoidant towards money now? Do I have a fear around it? Do I maybe not open my bills? Do I not look at my bank accounts? Do I, you know, shy away from making payments or starting that savings goal or starting investing? Maybe, maybe that avoidant mentality towards money is coming from something that happened a really long time ago. And I need to kind of dig through that. So developing that awareness and connecting yourself to that it's going to sound hokey and woo woo, but connecting yourself to that, that child that you were and what you learned about money early on. That matters. There's nothing woo woo about it. it. No matter how much you teach people all the technical things or skills, how to make money, if their mindset isn't in the right place. I love the, watching the shows of how much people, how much money people make and how much they spend. And there was this guy who was making 400, 400K a year. And he had no savings because of his lifestyle. He had no money left throughout the month. So it doesn't matter how much money, obviously, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. But when your habits are not there, when your mindset is not there, like you might be still broke or not have the savings, no matter how much money you make. So that's why I ask those questions, because it's important and it matters. Yeah, when you don't have the self-worth to know what enough is, then there will never be enough. And mm -hmm. you only you can define what enough is for you. And it's important to set that limit. It's important mm -hmm. to say, I am enough. This is enough. Because you'll How just, you can't earn enough. I agree. Because some people, there are people who are too greedy, where millions or hundred million, it's not enough. They want more. And because it's something they're trying to, there is a void inside of them, then they feel like by earning more money, they are going to be somehow enough or they will just fill out that void. So that's this inner work is so important, as important as having those skills to earn money and make money. What have, Has your habits of spending money changed since you are at a better place in your life? And if yes, how so? That's such a great question. I definitely have noticed my habits changing. Um, I spend more on things that give me back time, right? So oh. I live in New York city. I live in a 450 square foot apartment, but I still pay somebody to come here and clean. Mm. <laughs> and yes, I could absolutely do it myself, but it gives me time back that I can dedicate to this, which I'm super passionate about. Um, or it gives me time that I can put back and spend with my loved ones. And so to me, I'm at a stage where time is the most important resource. And that's what money means to me. Money means time to me. And so my spending over time has shifted from things like clothes and cocktails to now, you know, more intentional time with my loved mm. ones or myself. I love that answer. That's so important to whenever we can allow ourselves to have more time for our there are so many people who have earned way more money maybe than anyone we know but they feel guilty of spending it they might still go to the cheapest place and buy the cheapest coffee and eat the cheapest sandwich not because they enjoy it just because they feel guilty to spend the money so also that is another aspect of when you earn the money not to allow yourself to enjoy that money too let's talk yeah. about your book do you want to add anything Oh, I was just going to say, that's another aspect of, of scarcity mindset is, is, mm. is hoarding. Even if you have a lot of wealth, you may think, oh, my life is abundant. I must have an yeah. abundance mindset. 
But in reality, no, hoarding is the behavior of holding on to your fears and feeling like you don't have enough. And so that is still scarcity at play. And you really have to (laughs) dig into that mindset. Yes. So when people are like, no matter how much money people have, they might be the unhappiest people ever just because of their mindset. So mindset is not nothing about it. It's so important. Let's talk about your book, which I looked through your book and I loved the topic and it was so interesting. Tell me what was the inspiration and motivation behind writing the book and what is inside of the book and also where can people find the book? Basically everything about your book. (laughs) (laughs) So the book idea came to me in 2016. Everyone I'm sure in the planet knows what was happening in US in politics in 2016. It was a nightmare. And I just could not stomach the news cycle and what was happening here. So I shut everything down. I did like a media blackout, no doom scrolling, no nothing. And I was like, I'm just going to listen to personal finance advice. Sweet, soothing sounds of boring personal finance advice. I listened to thousands and thousands of hours and I never saw or heard anyone who looked like me, someone who had spent their career in the service industry working for tips. And I was like, how is it? within this entire umbrella of people in personal finance, is there no one talking to me and more importantly, to people like me? And I was just like, this is unacceptable. And I had to get over a lot of my own imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to write a personal finance book? I don't have, I don't have a college degree. I don't have any financial credentials. I don't, there's no reason I should be writing a personal finance book, but you know what? The people who did have credentials and did have the education to do this weren't doing it. And so maybe I can't speak for everybody, can I, but I can definitely speak to some people. And I have worked all over this country and I have worked a ton of different jobs. And so once I kind of got over that imposter syndrome, I was like, I can at least write the book that I wish I had had when I was 20. And so that set out on a few years of me figuring out, figuring out how to write a book. I didn't know how to write a book. <laughs> I didn't know how to... I had, oh my gosh, that was such a process in and of itself. Um, But it is, it came out eight months ago and it's done really well. It was just named one of the top five personal finance books of 2023 by Forbes magazine last week, which for a book that is exciting, I'm so excited. I'm so proud of this book. I really am. And um, especially because I self-published it, like A big part of my message is that you can do things in a very non-traditional way and still have success. You can work these strange jobs that no one gets and doesn't have any benefits and you can still have success. And I kind of wanted to walk the walk and show people like I can self-publish this book myself and it can still be successful and so can you. Um, And so I'm, I'm very, very proud of this book. It came out eight months ago and it's, it's already receiving awards and, and, the reviews have meant everything to me. Um, it's available on Amazon. You can just type in tipped or tip book and it'll pop up. Um, but yeah, it was, it was such a, a wonderful and important journey. And it was just in there, there are more than 5.5 million people working solely on tips in the U S alone. Wow. And that's the second largest employment sector. And to see that nobody was talking to this huge group of people, to see that they were so ignored and so underrepresented, and that part of what was happening was that they felt like their careers and their real their money wasn't real. Like I just wanted them to feel like somebody 
saw them and somebody knew that what their potential was and that their money and their careers are real. What do you think the biggest thing takeaway will be for people? Maybe so far, what the feedback from people you got, what is the biggest takeaway? Because they might be listening and they're like, you know how people are, the, li oh, the link of the book will be down in the show notes, but people are like, oh, you know, but what will be the biggest takeaway from them? For them? My, I think the most impactful thing that people won't realize is that, you know, nine of the chapters are tactical. Only one of the chapters is about mindset. But without that mindset chapter, you can't do any of those other nine chapters. And so I hope the biggest takeaway is the mindset chapter. But the chapter that was the most fun for me to write was the chapter on investing. Because financial services does a really good job of gatekeeping and keeping people out. They use hard jargon. They talk about things. They make it seem so complex and so arduous. And if there's one thing I'm good at, it's distilling things down to make it conversational and super fun and relatable. And so my investing chapter is just an entire analogy to being at the bar. If you understand what it's like to be at the bar, you're going to understand how to invest by the end of this chapter. I like mm -hmm. to say that wine and investing are exactly the same. Wine, you can get really deep into wine. You can talk about notes. You can talk about tannins, region, body, mouthfeel. You can, you can get way deep into the weeds about wine. But you don't have to get deep into the weeds about wine in order to have a good wine experience. You need to know a little bit about your tolerance, a little bit about what you like, and that's good enough. Mm -hmm. Same is true for investing. You can get super deep into investing. You can talk about PE ratios. You can go into the analysis of businesses. You can talk about Forex, bell curves. You can get so deep into it, but you don't have to. And you don't have to be intimidated by this because if you can name the difference between three different red wines and three different white wines, you are smart enough to be investing. And so to me, that's one of the most important things that I want people to come away with is that this money stuff, it's for you and you can do it. Why do you think it's important for, for people to read the books or listen to the right people? Because sometimes they might be like, you know, like I'm just going to read one book. I'm just going to try it for some people. They might achieve whatever they want. But I feel like whenever I have read a lot about the topic, I can just gather the information and make it on my own. It's like people spending, as you said, like 20 years on something and then putting all of that into this one book. But not everyone is a reader. Why do you think it's important to read or consume the right information? Yeah, I mean, I think you need a large sample size in order to distill what is correct. Like for me, it took those 10,000 hours of listening to so many different types of people. But one of the gifts that you get from 20 years of in, being in the service industry is you can smell BS. You can, mm. smell, you can smell who has an agenda and who's trying to sell you something because you are selling things all day long and you know what it looks like. And so the reason that I wanted it to be a book in a book is because one, I wanted it to be cheap. I wanted somebody to be able to get a full financial education for less than $20. For people who work low and middle income jobs, it's really important. The second, re and that's part of the reason, like I'm not selling anything else, right? Like I don't make money off of this. I've spent more money writing this book than I have at all close come to recouping it. Um, yes. It's more about just being able to like put the money back into the business. So that, that was the reason that it was a book initially. 
um, I didn't have a platform. I didn't know how to reach people. And I thought the only way I could do that was, was a book. And so that was, that was the avenue that I chose because I wanted mm. it to be comprehensive and also affordable. Also, because I think that, you know, the financial services industry, a lot of times people will be like, oh, I'm the person you should trust with your money. I should be the person, you don't need to worry about this. This is so complex. That's, you know, you work hard enough as it is. Hand That's a good your, point. Hand, hand your money over to me and I'll invest it for you or I'll put it in here and look at these returns that I'm showing you on this piece of paper. And it's like, no, you shouldn't trust anybody. You should learn this for yourself because nobody is going to care about your money more than you. And so I don't want to be a person who's like, give me your money. I want to be a person who's like, educate yourself. Here is one way to do that. I can be one example of that. Should I be the only one? No. Go and get 10,000 other voices in your head. You will figure out what feels true and what feels right for you. Mm. That's a really, really good point that you just raised. I have just, let's talk about you have, you and your wife have been together for 10 years. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so important when you are building your life and you are learning about finances, if your partner is not aligned with you, it becomes so hard to achieve your goals. It seems to me that you and your partner, wife are aligned, but for the people, what would be your advice for people as a couple? Like maybe some questions they can ask themselves, maybe like something that they can do together to become better at earning, saving money. When my wife and I first you know, even when we were dating, even the first few years of our marriage, we didn't share money. We did not. We were not on the same page financially. We were fiercely independent women who were just going to take care of ourselves. And for us, I think that hindered us because we weren't moving in the same direction. And, but every couple needs something different. I think having conversations. Yeah, of course that's great. But for people who aren't in the personal finance space, finding the right language or approach can be really intimidating and hard. So my advice for couples, if there's one, there's usually one person that is more interested in this stuff than the other person. And so if you are the person who's like, look at my Excel spreadsheet, look at this budget that we're going to do like, and you have a partner who's like, I want no part of that. They have some trauma. They have some financial trauma likely. And so you're going to have to approach it in the exact opposite way that you would think that you should approach it. Get away from the Excel spreadsheet. Focus more on dreaming with that person. That person needs to feel like money represents their dreams, something happy, something positive, not deprivation, not Excel spreadsheets, not, you know, we need to cut back on this. They already have enough of that probably. So the one way that I like to take the heat out of those conversations is listen to a podcast, put it on on Saturday when you're cleaning the house or whatever, and listen to a podcast. It's not your words. It's not your opinions. And so there's no heat to it. You can listen to these people talking about this thing and then maybe have a conversation. What did you think about that? How did that make you feel? Could we do something like that? What, you know, like, what were your takeaways? And so when one person is not approaching, then the other person doesn't have to run away from them. If you're both kind of coming at it neutrally, where you're like, let's kind of just explore this. How does this feel? How is this showing up? Then, then Mm. people can react to it more naturally. That's an amazing point because sometimes our brain can just close off 
when we feel like, oh, you want to make me do something or we mm-hmm. just feel pursued or whatever. So I love that advice, just listening to the podcast together and learning together, because as you said, it's not your words and they are more allowing. They're just more open because they see an expert there, even that. So they will just like take the information in. I'm loving this conversation so much. And I encourage people to go and buy your book for all the technical side of money. Because even if we talk for hours, you cannot cover what you just covered in your book. And we have, we could talk about this maybe for ages. If you would love to almost like, as a conclusion or add something to the conversation, maybe I haven't asked you something and you want to share something, what would it be? Um... I think maybe the only thing we haven't touched on is environments. Um, oh, I love that. Like in, your environment is so important. Your environment of where you work, your environment is, is, is a place that cultivates all of your habits. And so if you're in an environment that maybe doesn't cultivate the right types of habits, you have to be really intentional about how you can make modifications within your environment. Um, I remember there were so many times I was working at a club and, you know, everything on the menu was fried and it's really hard to like advocate for yourself and bring like a salad in a, in a brown bag and be like, Oh, can I like, can I steal a little space in this fridge? And, but it's really important to advocate for yourself and like, know that environment is super important to outcome and that you might need to be modifying your, your environment. And to, mm. to scan your environment for those hazards, every workplace, every industry, every job has hazards, but most jobs get training about how to avoid those hazards. In, in these industries where you're either working for yourself or you're working you know, in the, in the service industry, you aren't getting trained on how to approach your environment or to set boundaries or to look out for certain hazards. Hazards are even in the guests that we encounter the people that we wait on, they can chip at our confidence. They can chip at our, you know, our energy. And so being able to put boundaries in place or to protect yourself in your environment from that is also equally as important. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, environment. How does setting a boundary, give me a few examples, because we, obviously we, it makes sense, whatever you are saying, but we learn through the stories, we learn through the examples. So give me some examples of maybe you setting a boundary or anyone, you know, setting a boundary. So people know how it looks like. Yeah. Maybe a boundary is your, your manager's asking you to pick up shifts and, you know, Sunday is your day to have some mental health. So it looks like saying like, actually, I cannot, I can never work on sat- on Sundays. I'm so sorry. You know, if I could, I really, really wish I could, but I can't. So just being firm about what you're willing to accept. Mm-hmm. If a guest is asking you to do something, being able to saying yes is how other people get what they want. Saying no is how you get what you want. So being able to say no in your environment is an important boundary to be able to get what you want. And often that means, you know, the ability to walk away from a conversation, the ability to, if you don't agree with somebody and you're stuck in this like conversation, especially like dive bars, when you're working at a dive bar, you have to have some really ridiculous conversations. I like to say that the seating section at a dive bar is like the comment section on a Facebook post. It's <laughs> it's random and horrible and crazy. And you're, and that's what you're exposing yourself to on a daily basis. And so knowing how to 
build up the skill set to walk away from certain conversations, pivot out of certain conversations, giving yourself space and time to figure out how to do that thing. is very, It's very important. And that's where the mindset comes in. If you know, if you have that mindset of I'm going to say no to the things that does not belong into my life and is not aligned with my values, and there will be always a place where I find myself like I belong to this place. I love the environment. I love the boss. I love the manager. It's so important because you just feel so much more happier and the job is already so challenging. And I love that you added the environment. We just have to just be in the environment there where we belong. We are the we are like living organisms, like a plant. If the environment is not right, if it's too hot, too cold, we don't pour the water, it's gonna die. I feel like environment is the same for us. So that's a really good point that you made here. Yeah, and if you're <laughs> if, if you're that plant, you have to be willing to take up space. You have to be willing to spread your roots. You have to be willing to, you know, I remember so many times working in this industry where I put everybody's needs before my own. I remember shifts where I didn't go to the bathroom because I was running around serving other people. And it's like when you self-abandon, when you sacrifice yourself that much, it's going to be detrimental to you as an overall person and your overall well-being and your financial well-being. You have mm -hmm. to remember to put yourself first. You have to pay yourself first. You have to treat yourself first. That includes listening to your body, listening to your mind, paying attention to your surroundings. That was so poetic. Take up this face because you are a dead plant. I love that. Barbara, where can people find you? Where can people connect you? What are some ways that you bring value to people today? Yeah, I try to make financial literacy as fun and approachable as possible. I do that through my social media accounts. Uh, I mostly hang out on Instagram. I'll take I'll make memes. I sometimes do stand-up comedy. Um, so I like to, to make it really fun and funny. Um, you can find me on Instagram and on all the socials at Tipped Finance. So T-A-P-P-E-D, Finance, F-I-N-A-N-C-E. And then you can also reach me on my website, www.tippedfinance.com. You can approach me for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I do money talks. If you have a bar, a club, a, you know, a, you own Uber, please reach out to me. I'd love to talk to your staff and educate them on how they can get better with their finances. Mm. I also do corporate speaking gigs. Um, but yeah, if you just have a money win and you're in the industry, feel free to reach out. I love to, I love to hear people's wins. I love that. And I appreciate um you be willing to one thing is you gaining the knowledge and you learning about all of these things and you spending this time but then the urge that you had to i want to share that isn't there is no information for people like me and you shared you spent the years on learning teaching yourself how to write and then sharing and making these complex ideas easier to share and for people to understand it easier that's admirable and i love that thank you so much um, what would be your almost like a message that you could leave us with? Maybe as a coach, you can leave us with questions we can ask ourselves, or it can be a quote, a movie, a book, anything that you want, a sentence, a word, but something that is in your heart at the very moment. The phrase I will leave you with is one that I've been developing for a long time, and it's called financial legitimacy. And it surrounds the beliefs and ideas around your money that make you feel valid. So I think people maybe can leave that and think about how does legitimacy show up in my financial life? What makes me feel mm -hmm. valid? How are ways that I conform? And do I need to? Mm. 
Thank you so much. I admire your discipline. Thank you so much for your time because time is one of the most important gifts people can give us. And just thank you so much for being part of the show. Ani, thank you so much for what you do. You are helping so many people. <laughs> and to the listeners, have a phenomenal rest of the day or night, wherever you are. And until next time.